I'm Jim Durkin, and on this week's episode of the Hunt Quietly podcast, we're talking long-range shooting and the ethics behind it. If you haven't already heard of him, Joseph Von Benedict is our guest. Joseph is a former competitive shooter, longtime outdoor writer, and the host of the Backcountry Hunting podcast. I, I really learned a lot during this episode, and I appreciate Joseph taking the time to sit with us and, ch- and talk about long-range hunting. Hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Okay, we're here on the Hunt Quietly Podcast with Joseph Von Benedict. Thanks, Joseph, for joining us. How you doing? Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I am well. It's bright and early on a Saturday morning, and there's no better reason to get up than to talk about hunting and all things related. Yeah, yeah. Usually, uh, full disclosure, my podcasts are consists of a, a glass of scotch, and this time I've substituted for a hot cup of Joe, so a little bit different <laughs> being up early. Sure. I'm, man, I'm a family man. I've got Four kids and a brand new puppy, and my evenings are pretty busy. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, same here. We're we're full into wrestling season and swimming and running kids everywhere. So I feel your pain. So today we're talking long range. Long range seems to be popular these days, and we're hoping to dive into some of the reasons why it's popular. And maybe talk about some of the ethics behind it and and get into the nuts and bolts of that. And you have a, a podcast, Joseph. So you you've talked about this quite a bit on your podcast. Sure. A long range um is bleeding over from the competitive world into the hunting world and has become really trendy. And there's there's obviously good and bad to that, just like most aspects in life. The good side is, you know, America is a nation of riflemen, and anything that increases our ethical lethality is a good thing. On the flip side, it's become so popular that people are attempting, in some cases, to shoot long on big game when they could get closer, and they're sometimes taking shots that they simply aren't prepared for. Right? They haven't put in the hard yards earned those skills the hard way and they're not able to translate uh, the effort into a result in the field and so sometimes you end up with a oh an unfortunate cir- circumstance with a wounded animal or whatnot so there's good and bad to this scene yeah and and l- let's talk about well first of all we sh- let's talk about your your background and and what you do and and uh some of your um resume if you will sorry i should have started that from the beginning but do you do you want to give the folks that maybe um don't follow the gun world or the shooting world uh your background yeah happy to so i grew up in deep southern utah in a really remote area my dad's farm was 100 miles from the nearest stoplight or supermarket I started shooting competitively when I was 14 years old and doing 
pretty well. So I didn't play any of the typical sports during my high school years. Did a little bit of pseudo gunsmithing for about four years. So I learned a lot about firearms, how to work on them, how to make them perform. Because obviously, if you're in that competitive world and you want to be in the upper echelons, whether you're shooting baskets on the basketball court or you're shooting bullets downrange, you've got to have your technique and your equipment uh, polished, right? I uh, grew up with a love of hunting and shooting as well. In my 20s, I guided for about nine years in Montana and in southern Utah. Continued competing, uh, did fairly well with that. And at this point in time, I've competed in a, a quite a broad spectrum of the shooting sports, ranging all the way from black powder stuff up through modern PRS com competitions, cowboy action, F-class, three-gun, uh, and so forth. And enjoy it all. At this point in my life, I'm so busy. I just get to dabble in it anymore. But yeah. uh, meanwhile, I, I've i always loved to write. And in college, I started publishing. And, and long story short, after college, got hired on as a editor for one of the biggest hunting, fishing, outdoor magazine publication houses in the world. And spent two years in L.A. and four years in Illinois then. Uh, heading up Shooting Times magazine, and then transitioned to writing full-time so I could get back to the Rocky Mountains with my family where I grew up, and there's public land to hunt, lots more opportunity uh, if you're not a big landowner, right? And just raising my kids out here and, and loving life. How, how does a country boy from southern Utah survive in L.A.? <laughs> that must have been like a fish out of water, no? <laughs> you know, I've said this elsewhere, but it, I, it bears repeating when I was young and growing up, man, I, I lived the cowboy life. I worked for one of the old settlers whose ancestors, um, pioneered the town that I grew up in and wow. worked cattle for years through my teens. And, you know, I was heavily anti that rhinestone drugstore cowboy type and, I always swore there's two places I'd never live, and that's New York City or Los Angeles. Of course, when a door of opportunity opens into an industry that you've always yearned to be within, you know, the, basically the hunting, shooting, magazine industry, sure. you, go where it, you go where it takes you. And so that was my toe through the door. And as it happened, my wife and I absolutely loved our two years there. We were dirt poor our rent on a little tiny one-bedroom apartment was about 60 percent of my monthly salary wow and so yeah we lived pretty skinny i remember there were times when we had two weeks left before sorry a week left for the next paycheck and we had 15 dollars in the bank <laughs> and so we ate pasta and we walked everywhere and we made it work and yeah it was actually pretty cool. We were not too far, about a half hour drive from the beach and that's free. So we spent a lot of time there and just, it was a great learning and growing experience. And funny enough, I was able to make some friends with a local Hispanic group that did a lot of hunting and I'd drive with them about two hours out from LA where there's a big public land area and we'd do a lot of hunting. I never shot a, a deer in California, but my wife did. Nice. And, uh, yeah, it was great. We had our first child there toward the end. And then uh, just out of the blue, I got offered the position at the helm of shooting times. 
With that came a requirement to move to Illinois. And honestly, great that state. was I love that state. You know, for the hunting, it was great. The people I worked with in the office, it was great. There's beautiful scenery in certain areas along the Illinois River and so forth. But yeah, I I will say that state was a, a struggle for me to live in. I was really challenged uh, there. Uh, no politics, mountains, no coast. Yeah. No mountains. Yeah. The I like geography with variety, and there yeah, isn't any yep. variety there. I mean, you got corn and you got beans, and there's hardwoods. And those are all beautiful, but they're fairly limited in scope, shall we say? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and the other thing is the town I was living in, Peoria, is um, headquarters, world headquarters for Caterpillar. And there were three great big notable hospitals there. So full of wealthy ex- excuse me, executives. And they had leased up every corner of available hunting property within about an hour and a half drive. So it was very hard for me to find any place, uh, again, being young and uh, yeah, that's, not making that's it. yeah. One of the topics we cover on this podcast, just what what that's a whole nother can of worms to open. But yeah, we we, sure. we talk about leasing quite a bit. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, I'm in Idaho now, and uh, while there are still challenges wherever you live, I absolutely love it. Right on. So I figured let's. As we get into the to the long range, let's talk about the technology because it seems like, and I love I love guns. I love learning about calibers and reading about calibers, and new calibers. But it seems like every time you you turn around, there's a new long range caliber uh, that comes out. You you want to talk about some of the new calibers and and just how the performance seems to just keep getting better and better and better. Sure. And let's back up if we can and just briefly skip across the high points of uh, innovation that's led to long-range capability, starting in, oh, the mid-1800s. So we went from round balls in muzzleloaders to conical bullets that had a lot more sectional density, carried more momentum. And although we didn't really use the term back then, they were a higher BC type of projectile. Then in the late 1800s, we got smokeless powder, and that necessitated the development of jacketed bullets, and suddenly we're shooting projectiles twice as fast as had ever been possible before. So again, we're gaining uh, distance capability. And the the boys that fought through World War I and World War II came home with the knowledge of what a 30-06 can do with a fairly modern jacketed bullet driven at uh, what was at the time best possible velocities. Then we had rifle scopes come into the mix. And for the first time, hunters and shooters could get a really fine aiming point on a game animal. Traditionally, you know, if you had iron sights and you're trying to get a fine bead on a, a deer 300 yards away, it ain't going to happen unless you right. are really, really skilled, right? Really and have lucky. incredible eyesight. But with the event of magnified optics, suddenly hunters could get a, a consistent, perfect point of aim on a deer, even at four or 500 yards. Then we had Jack O'Connor come into the mix with his love of the fast 270 with the lighter 130 grain type bullets. And he was shooting sheep at uh, 400 yards and more because he was a very serious rifleman. He burned barrels out practicing with his 270. And that led 
readers to understand that the rifles are capable of, of it if humans become capable. Then we had, oh gosh, more than a half century of what I think of as stagnation. We had a few cartridge developments such as the 7 Rim Mag and the 300 Win Mag and so forth. But until laser rangefinders came along, what, in the late 80s? And then, you know, my first rangefinder, I think, was a Bushnell 300. So you could get distances out to about 300 yards, which helped for bow hunters, but it didn't help rifle hunters much. And then a Bushnell 400 and a Bushnell 600. And then different companies started piling into the mix. And pretty soon there are rangefinders that will reliably read to 1,000 or 1,200 yards. And that drove a migration among people with good optics to a solution, a consistent solution to match distances. And people started using dial-up turrets. They're very rudimentary several decades ago. Or holdover reticles with hash marks on the reticle. Like the Swarovskis. Yeah, some of the early ones. And, I mean, back in the day, we did all of our uh, long-range solutions the hard way. We shot at 200 and 300 and 400 and 500 yards. And for those of us that were trying to push the envelope and just learn, we'd shoot at 600. I've shot at 1,000 yards with iron sights, just seeing what I could do back with a, you know an iron sight competitive rifle back in the day. And as long as you had the right equipment, you could make all the stars line up. But it wasn't until ballistic calculators, first on a computer and then on smartphones, right, came along that we could actually comprehend the effect that altitude and temperature have on air density and therefore a bullet's flight path. The colder it is and the lower your altitude, the denser the air is. And so the more friction it applies to the bullet, the more it slows down. So all of these factors are evolving together. And the result on cartridges was first, these factors started driving bullets with higher ballistic coefficients. Now, ballistic coefficient, as you well know, is just a a term that refers to the aerodynamic capability of a bullet, how sleek it is. And you can compare, say, you know, a, an old 30-30 bullet with a round nose to a barge going across the lake. It pushes a lot of water. It has to displace a lot of water as it travels to a speedboat that's flying across the surface, right? It would be a, a, an equivalent of a modern high BC bullet. With the lowered friction, the greatly lowered friction, suddenly we retained a lot more impact velocity. Our bullets bucked the wind a lot more effectively, and they carried energy far more effectively downrange. And so concurrently with the developments in laser range finders and rifle scopes that gave shooters the ability to dial up or hold over with hash marks in a reticle, we had bullets that were improving capability then there's this kind of explosion of cartridges because really long stretched out bullets don't work with a lot of cartridges such as the seven rem mag in a traditional length action 30-06 length action usually has a magazine box of just about 3.4 inches or a little bit shorter and that's the same action, of course, with a different bolt face, magnum bolt face, that the 7mm Remington Magnum was designed to fit into. But when you suddenly take a 180 grain, really long, stretched out, sleek bullet and load it in that 7mm Remington Magnum, 
you got to push it down into the case far enough that your your loaded round will still fit in the magazine, right? That long, fine entry nose on the bullet was so long that the curvature of the bullet was sinking inside the case mouth. And a bunch of that bullet was protruding down into the, the inside of the case, what I, you know we call your propellant reservoir or the internal capacity of your cartridge case. And so it didn't work. You're minimizing the capability of that cartridge to hold propellant and you're kind of uh, compromising the way the neck of the cartridge holds that bullet and it won't feed well if you got your case mouth hanging over the curvature of the bullet and there's a gap around it there just didn't work so then shooters started and gunsmiths started lengthening magazine boxes or tending to prefer rifle actions that just have a longer magazine box like a remington 700 standard length action is not a standard length actually it's closer to 3.6 so it's optimal for use with these bullets well one thing led to another and we started developing cartridges that were really designed for a few uh, specific things one was the ability to to hold these long bullets by the base so the nose fully protruded way out and the 65 creedmoor is the first really classic example of this it's a short action cartridge, but if you set that case beside, say, a 243 or something, one of the typical uh, older school of short action cartridges, the actual body from the shoulder down is much shorter. That's to enable what we call head height, lots of room for that bullet to protrude forward. Rifle barrels had to be given a faster rifling twist rate to stabilize these really long bullets. It's like a, a top, you know, a child's toy. You can sure. spin, yeah, you can spin a top with a real wide base quite slowly and it'll stabilize and, and keep spinning a long time. But if you've got kind of a tall, skinny top, you got to spin that puppy fast and it will destabilize and start to wobble and then tip over much uh, sooner as as those uh, ro that rotational velocity degrades. So we had the need for head height in new cartridges. We had the need for cartridges that are spec'd from the beginning by SAMI, uh, S-A-A-M-I, that's the governing cartridge governing body here in the United States, that were spec'd with a faster twist in the, in the barrel so they could handle those bullets. And then finally, manufacturers came around and designers, cartridge designers, and indeed shooters, accomplished shooters, came around to recognizing the benefits of efficiency in a cartridge case. Instead of shooting stuff with uh, you know, cartridges with massively overboard internal capacity, meaning there's more propellant there than is efficient, guys started turning back to cartridges with kind of a, a medium capacity for the bore diameter that they're shooting and they gain a lot of barrel life. They gain what I like to call a civilized cartridge. It responds well to fine tuning during hand loading and you can achieve really good accuracy. I and like to is, say, go ahead. I was going to say, and this has been going on since performance you know, wise, P.O. Ackley, you know, he's, he, he tried to improve the performance of all different kinds of calibers. This yeah. A long time. P.O. Ackley was an extraordinary 
gunsmith and engineer and very forward looking in his cartridge design. So as you probably know, one of my all-time favorite cartridges is the 280 Ackley Improved, which is just a 280 Remington with the taper, most of the taper removed from the case body, which gives it a little bit more internal volume and the shoulder angled forward. It's called blown out, right? Fire formed. So you've got more, uh, uh, propellant capacity by a small margin, but more than anything, it's a more efficient burn chamber. The way that your cartridge case internally holds propellant directly affects how efficient it is. If you can burn your powder more efficiently, you get more speed and less variation. Less variation means greater accuracy. So all these, this perfect storm of things were coming together and really kicked off in, oh, I'm going to call it 2008 when the 6.5 Creedmoor was introduced. And since then, we've had a a storm of new cartridges that have been designed along these principles. And people look at some of these new things and say, why the heck did we need that? The 7mm PRC, the most recent and, you know, certainly the, the one of this family cartridges that's garnering the greatest interest currently was one that I just shook my head at until I started to learn about it. And then, man, I... I changed my tune. I learned enough that I recognized that this cartridge, whether you're a long range shorter shooter or a close range shooter has some profound inherent advantages. So it's a funny thing, but yeah, just in the last, let's call it 15 years, the world of cartridges has dramatically changed. Yeah. And I was, I'm glad you brought that up that, that it seems like once the popularity of the six, five Creedmoor took off, that that was just like the green light, like, Hey, we, we can, we can start developing these calibers and people are interested in it. And that yeah. may be, you know, and that may not be the case. Maybe it's, it's just been people wanted to developers wanted to improve different calibers over time. And, and that was just the starting point, but either way that the six, five, it just seems like since that time caliber, new calibers have just come onto the scene. It seems like every year. Just about. Yeah. And I think there was a, all the stars lined up a couple of years after the six, five Creedmoor was announced. So it was designed by maybe the, the leading ballistic expert in the world today, Dave Emery, uh, who was working for Hornady at the time, and Dennis DeMille, who was a world champion long-range shooter. And they designed that cartridge to be a thousand-yard competitive cartridge, the 6.5 Creedmoors, made so that a guy could go to the store and buy factory-loaded match-grade ammo off the shelves, take it to a match, and have enough performance that they won. And it's done incredibly well in the competitive circuit, but once the average shooter and hunter caught on to the cartridge and how easy it is to make it hits at long range. It, it just grew like wildfire. And, and there's no recoil, you know, well, so that, the, very <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to be a, a mild jerk here and say, there's no such thing as a cartridge with no recoil, <laughs> but <laughs> there's very little recoil. Yeah. So it's easy for us humans to shoot. Well, very good at bucking wind has a high BC bullet generally, so it holds velocity, holds energy relatively well. Now, the trouble is hunters across the nation started shooting vital size steel targets at 600 and 800 yards, and 
and even dinging like, you know, 24 inch plates at a thousand yards consistently. And that made them believe they could be killers at those distances. But if you're, uh, if you're well enough versed in ballistics and you understand that a certain level of velocity is required for a bullet to mushroom and a certain amount of bullet speed and energy is required to adequately compromise the vitals as that bullet passes through, you recognize pretty quick that the 6.5 Creedmoor is not a thousand yard deer killer. I've seen deer shot at ranges that that cartridge had no use shooting them and elk and it often isn't pretty it takes too long for them to to expire so that you know that prompted the development of some other bigger cartridges whether people like to admit it or not and and now we have the 6.8 western the 7mm prc we have the 6.5 prc which is just a faster version you can look at it that way of the 6.5 creedmoor very consistent very inherently accurate and it gives shooters a step up and of course big ones like the 300 prc and we have a pretty good selection of modern cartridges if your pursuit you know, like your your passion is trying to extend your ethical hunting range we have some very good choices now of course that leads to a different discussion we have to start talking about the ethics when we start talking about trying to increase our reach and, and that's the next topic so but w- one more thing i always said the 65 creedmoor would not be as popular if it had a different name because Creedmoor just sounds cool. <laughs> it's <laughs> if it was called the six, five Durkin, I don't, I think it'd be obsolete right now. <laughs> well, you never know. And, and for shooters and hunters that are unaware of the background there, Creedmoor is steeped in history. So that was the, the long range, uh, shooting range, public shooting range in new England back really? in the day. In fact, I, I believe it was, yeah. I think it was 1878, something like that. The basically the national championships of the continental uh, of continental Europe were the Irish, and it's a, a very cool and long story. But the Irish challenged the Americans; they wanted to be world champions. Came to Creedmoor, and the Americans beat them. Uh, and they're shooting black powder cartridges out of Sharps rifles and Remington rolling block rifles at 800, 900, and 1,000 yards. And our American team, which was assembled in only a matter of like two and a half months, won. It's a pretty cool story. So Creedmoor goes way back. And I love the fact that Hornady chose that name for that cartridge uh, rather than trying to say it's the 6.5 Hornady or anything like that. It's steeped in history, even though most shooters that own it have no idea. I'm really glad you shared that because that's a cool story and and I did not know that. Yeah. Look it up, folks listening. Look up the the old match at Creedmoor online. Read about it because there's a it's a really cool story. The the championship came down to the final shot. There was a an American competitor named Colonel Bodine who had one shot left to fire and he got up off the line asked for a drink somebody brought him a soda bottle and in opening it the thing shattered and gashed his hand like really badly and he had to get his shot down range right the the match was in the balance i think the americans were a a point or two behind and his shot if he hit a bullseye would count for three points he wrapped his hand in his neckerchief or his handkerchief and as i understand 
this was a big gash and it was in his shooting hand, right? He laid down prone. Their required position was prone, but no external support. You couldn't have shooting sticks, no bipod, nothing. So he's supporting this thing with his hands, right? And shot a bullseye at a thousand yards, won the match. Wow. That is a cool story. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Anyway, so another factor. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Another. Well, another factor that really helped the 6.5 Creedmoor and and kind of almost launched the modern long-range target shooting movement was American sniper, Chris Kyle. Yes. Because that story resonated with Americans, shooters and non-shooters alike. And clear back to the Revolutionary War, as I mentioned earlier, we've always been a nation of riflemen. Now, I married a British girl, and so we have a lot of fun kind of teasing back and forth. But (laughs) our riflemen won in large part because they're shooting rifled farms, not muskets. And they could shoot further. And, well, I mean, there's a lot of uh, various aspects to that. But the precision rifles and the American skill with them played a large part in winning the Revolutionary War. So that the skill is something that let's talk about in in my opinion and and I've heard you mention this on your podcast the the harsh reality is that most people most hunters don't have the skill set to really shoot long range and and we could talk about that but the next thing is like what is long range and what are the ethics behind long range? Because there's some things that that we can look at. For example, like in 2017, the Wyoming Fishing Game did a white paper on distances of detection from animals. I think it was specifically deer and elk. And they came up with the 400-yard threshold, threshold that animals just can't detect humans or or their ability to to detect humans is about at 400 yards so should there and and is there a threshold for shooting that would be considered fair chase and i know you you've, hmm. you've talked about this before where 450 is a mark but you've gone out to 600. Do you want to do you want to expand on that for our listeners? Sure. And there's a lot of different directions we can take this, but uh as far as the fair chase goes, that's a challenging challenging subject to define. And we could argue and debate that six ways to Sunday. As far as, you know, that um detection zone, man, I've had elk bust me at a mile. And sure. blow out of the country full throttle. You know, you skyline yourself at the wrong moment, or you get in the head of a canyon where the wind is sucking right down the bottom. Uh, you know, I I understand they've got to average it somewhere when they're doing a study like this, but I just don't really buy into that. Conversely, you know, I grew up hunting with a longbow. I still love doing that, although I'm rarely effective right you just it is what it is i do that for the hunt experience more than to put meat in the freezer and in those cases you know you got to get i got to get within 25 yards of an animal and there are times when you can be stalking 
you know, a, a bedded animal in a high wind with a rock outcropping between you and you get within 15 yards quite easily if there's enough wind to cover the noise it's all in your favor so it's blowing your scent away i think that's so situational that i don't find a lot of value personally in that study now of course that's just one man's opinion but as far as that uh, detection zone being part of fair chase i'm gonna throw out my my own thought on this i don't i don't think that uh one should place themselves intentionally in a detection zone just to make the hunt fair. That's if you're a serious hunter and you're trying to put meat on the field, that is very counterproductive, right? So intentionally giving an animal a chance to detect you, hmm, just a bad idea if you're a hunter, right? So especially here in the West where opportunities are often very hard won and dearly earned i don't ever intentionally swing you know odds in the animal's favor <laughs> so the shooting yeah, it, long i i, the, I was gonna F, say i think the detection ahead. zone and, and I, again i didn't look into this study but i think what what and this is assumption this is sort of my interpretation of it what what i think they're they're saying for that 400 yard threshold for a detection zone is that a deer's eyesight is greatly limited after 400 yards. Uh, I agree with you that plenty of times people get detected out at past 400 yards, but they're talking about their physical attributes and where the limitations start to come in. And I think they determine that it's at 400 yards. Sure. And if that concerns you and you feel like you've just um, murdered something instead of hunted it, uh, then fair enough. I mean, that's always a personal choice. Hunt closer if that's going to make you feel better about it. To me, the ethics of long-range shooting have nothing to do with that. They have to do with skill, which you've touched on, mentioned there a couple times, and with the capability of the projectile you're delivering on target to cleanly and ethically kill the animal without suffering. So that's where we could talk about the skill. and And I think most guys just don't have the skill to shoot past 400 yards. Do you want to elaborate on that? Cause you, you kind of, you kind of mentioned that uh, in a previous podcast of your own about the 600 yard threshold and what it takes to actually be proficient at 600 yards. Yeah, sure. So something I often say is that every backcountry hunter, because that's what we focus on the backcountry hunting podcast, right? We've got listeners from New Zealand to Scandinavia and across the world, but we really try and, and focus on backcountry hunting and, and the skills that will help us become better hunters in the worst situations and the most challenging conditions. But I've always preached that every serious hunter should also be a serious shooter and should attempt to achieve quarter mile capability. Now, that's just a fun term that I use kind of as personal to me because my stepfather that I was really close with was a jockey and he ran quarter horse race horses at a distance of a quarter mile. It's 440 yards. We can round it to 450 yards. Now, another statement I've often made though, is that today 600 yards, in my opinion, is the new 400 yards. Jack O'Connor and his contemporaries back in the day. And for those of you who don't know who O'Connor was, he was maybe the 
the most famous and of all the the outdoor riders and hunters, celebrity hunters. He was also a professor of English, and so his articles and his books were incredibly well written. They're literary. They have literary quality, which is something that's often lacking, candidly, in the outdoor journalism world. At any rate, those guys were shooting 400 yards pretty effectively. But past then, they got somewhat erratic because they didn't have rangefinders. They didn't have dial-up turrets on their scopes. They didn't have high BC bullets that buck the wind well and so forth. So today, with all those modern tools that are disposable at our disposal, I really think that a dedicated rifleman can achieve lethal 600-yard capability. Whether or not you should is a different matter, right? Yeah. And that's up to you. But I think it's possible. Now, the trouble is it takes practice. And just like being a great guitarist or uh, a great uh, you know, sailing vessel captain, or whatever the case may be, tuning race cars, being good at something requires application. You got to practice it until it is ingrained in the very fibers of your being. And folks these days tend to buy a, a good scope and a nice rifle. You can get a Ruger precision rifle, an RPR and 6.5 Creedmoor, Put a $600 scope on it, buy a few boxes of factory ammo, and go to the range with somebody who can basically show you a few pointers. And that same day, you can be hitting a thousand yard target off the bench with a little bit of tutoring. People then haul that thing out into the field and think they can bang away the deer. And that is a huge mistake, right? On the flip side, you've got the guys, very wealthy clientele that buy uh, firearms that are really optimized for long-range hunting. I like the term precision hunting. I think it's a little bit less controversial. They'll put, you know, they'll, they'll drop 6,000 bucks into a custom rifle, another 1,500 into uh, having custom load development created and a bunch of ammo for that rifle, two, 3,000 bucks on a rifle scope. And they walk out into the field with, you know, a thousand $10,000 rig that's extremely capable of cleanly killing at unheard of distances 20 years ago. However, they haven't learned to drive that Ferrari, if that analogy makes sense. But they go in the field, they jump in the driver's seat, and they pin that throttle, right? They think they can do anything with it. So I have nothing against people that want to increase their ethical range. And this is a, you know, I have, I, I understand that there are people out there that are going to say they're just deer snipers. That's not hunting. Well, you got to keep in mind that not all people are wired the same. Not all people share the same opinions. We often have much different interests. And some of us are very much wired uh, instinctively. These are the guys that make great musicians that can, you know, do things like surfing and their body just knows how to respond and they can do incredible things with the right wave and the right board. On the other end of the stick, you've got the, the engineers and the mathematicians among us that really enjoy precision pursuits, whatever the case, what, you know, whatever that is, whether it's architecture and building a staircase that theoretically should not stand, but because they're engineers, they can 
make it work well, and make it succeed, right? It's a skill set. It's it's the same. It's just a different hunter skill set. Like not everybody can sneak within 50 yards of a bedded deer. But some people can and some people do it. Just like the same, not everybody can shoot a deer at a thousand yards. Absolutely. And so I, I get it. I totally get it. It's a it's a skill set that that people have, but based on my personal experience, if you're not shooting, if you're only going to the bench to shoot, you're not going to be a long range shooter. You you that, have to gain a skill set with shooting in the positions you're going to be potentially hunting in. And that's could be a variety of different positions based on yeah. your terrain and, and the and what's in front of you. Absolutely. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And just like, so when I was in California, I got a surfboard and I loved going out and trying to surf. I was incredibly bad at it, right? You can't buy a surfboard and go to the North shore on uh, Oahu and expect to ride one of those waves successfully. You can't buy a long range hunting rifle and just walk out into the field and expect the equipment to pick up the slack where you lack. Right. Right. Yep. So as a shooter, Man, you know, as I say, we're all wired differently. Some of us get incredible fulfillment and satisfaction from getting inside uh, 60 yards archery hunting elk in thick timber. Others get incredible satisfaction out of cleanly killing a deer at distances that many hunters consider impossible or unethical. And it's just, you know, we're humans. That variety is a beautiful thing, but... I've just got to say this for those of you listening that want to pursue long range uh, capability and intend to shoot at big game at long range, you owe it to the game. You owe it to yourself to develop competency before you begin attempting that. And that is not a pursuit that you can treat as a hobby. It's got to be a passion. You've got to live and breathe it. You have to practice it consistently. You have to burn barrels out in your preferred rifle by shooting literal thousands of rounds through that rifle in simulated hunting situations. And that's not hard to do. You just find a place where you can hike and shoot and you hike up the ridge and, you know, spot a, a rock on the far canyon side with a safe background around it. You range it and you shoot it and you have a friend spot and help you learn to call the wind and achieve a quick shooting position. Uh, when I do these practice sessions with friends, we time each other and we spot hits for ourselves. And then we confer with the fall, you know, the fellow that's not behind the rifle, got a spotting scope, has got a better read on it. Find out if we were right. And we discuss what we did wrong. And we do this over and over. And still I'm not what I'd call a long range shooter, which if we want, we can circle that back to, you know, how do you define long range? What is long range? Yeah, it, when when we had Ron Spomer on, we talked about a lot of things, but one thing Ron brought up was was like a rule book, like getting all the powers that be in the same room and developing a, a rule book and, and long range would certainly be one of them. Do you think collectively we should talk about a threshold or, or, or do you feel like it's just up to the individual and the individual skill set? And, you know, like you said, you know, this is this is a personal thing for for the engineer that that develops that skill set. Sure. You know, I lean toward the latter. 
but the funny thing is the first defining factor isn't the engineer or the skill set the engineer meaning the shooter right the yeah, first yeah. defining factor is your cartridge capability because yeah. if you're shooting a little mild cartridge and i'm i'm gonna pick the 6.5 pr uh creedmoor here because in my opinion that's little and mild for use here in the west on elk right if you don't have enough speed bullet speed on impact and you don't have enough energy which of course is a function of uh bullet weight and velocity on impact you're not going to kill cleanly and so the first thing you have to do the first defining factor is your cartridge in, the, in your chosen projectile you cannot even move to the next step and say you know what i'm going to hunt moose at 1200 yards with my 6.5 grendel which is even smaller than the 6.5 creedmoor right you right. cannot achieve that you you have just limited yourself you then have to crunch the ballistics of that cartridge determine if it even has enough oomph or authority as i like to call it at any distance you move up until you find a cartridge that does and then if you want to become an 800 yard shooter on moose you have to find a cartridge that delivers adequate bullet velocity which to me is 2000 feet per second and north almost every hunting bullet on the market can be counted on to expand uh, consistently completely on impact create that nice mushroom shape that really disrupts vitals uh, at 2000 feet per second or higher then you have to de determine whether or not your bullet has enough energy now of course, energy is a term I don't like. It's a metric that's very easily manipulated by velocity because it's biased toward velocity. I like to consider bullet frontal diameter and uh, a couple other things in the mix. And so it's kind of an elusive concept. But if we fall back on the traditional standards, traditionally, historically, experts suggest that a 1,000 foot-pounds of energy is is enough for deer and 1500 foot pounds of energy is enough for elk so we can use those it's simple right and the 6.5 creedmoor is is not great right you, you got to get into the 7 mm's and probably my opinion from the the 280 ackley up to start achieving you know even using a cartridge that enables you then the engineer the human behind the trigger to begin pushing the envelope and determining his or her own ethical limits so next Rather than just arbitrarily saying, well, 578 yards should be the limit for everybody. I recommend that people shoot. You shoot and you shoot and you shoot. You shoot at vital size targets. And if one year, 400 yards is as far as you can hit it, whether your game is deer and you're shooting at a 10-inch target or it's elk and you're shooting at 18-inch targets, who cares? Shoot at what you're going to hunt, right? And if one year... You know, the next year you can go to 500 yards and ring that plate every single time from a variety of shooting positions when under pressure, say your buddy gives you a 12 second time limit to go from standing to an improvised position and hit that target, more power to you. You've just achieved 500 yard capability, right? And we can push our envelopes that way. Now, we'll still eventually be defined by our cartridge, right? And we need to talk about bullet choice as well, too, at some point, because uh, fundamentally, the bullet, the projectile itself is the only connecting factor between ourselves and our game. That's what does the job on impact. Everything else is a launching pad, cartridge, rifle, human, everything. Well, and, and you know, that's just it. You're, you're illustrating that it's not just being able to shoot 
at a thousand yards proficiently, it's the bullet choice, it's the caliber choice. And as you just pointed out, there are people that aren't looking in that deep to it because you do hear these stories and you see it on YouTube and whatnot, people shooting elk at a thousand yards with the 6.5 Creedmoor. So those folks are either ignorant or, or they're just testing the boundaries to contradict. Well, you can't tell me, look at me. I shot this elk. Look at, here's the video. But people aren't taking all those components and analyzing it and coming up with the best uh, scenario to shoot long distance with a specific caliber. They're not looking at that. No, they're not. And you know, I, I once did a podcast uh, and, and I've written articles about this too on how the 308 is not a great elk cartridge. Yes, you can kill elk with it, but it's not really good for that. And I had a very disturbed reader write to me and say, I killed an elk at 411 yards with one shot with my 308. He went 15 yards and tipped over. Tell me how that isn't perfect. And, you know, my response to that was, okay, do it nine more times. Then you'll have 10 examples of shooting elk at more than 400 yards with the 308, then you can voice an opinion. Yeah. One example does not either prove or disprove a cartridge's capability. I could take a 243 and put a fast twist barrel on it and a 110 grain long range bullet and probably with enough effort and waiting for just the right situation with no wind and all that, I have no doubt that I could kill an elk at 1200 yards. But it would take all the stars lining up everything just perfect and then i'd probably have to shoot it a bunch of times to me unacceptable that's just folly you're you're begging for trouble by using a tool that's not optimized for the task and so yeah, like there, to- there, there was a girl in, in alaska years ago that gained notoriety she was in one of the books i don't know if it was chris batten or larry bartlett but I can't add it. I don't remember what book it is, but she shot a, a, a grizzly bear with a 243. Yeah, that was she was successful, but God, I wouldn't try it again. No. There, you know, if I'm if the record books haven't been uh, you know, if it hasn't been surpassed, and if my memory serves, I'm I'm profoundly middle-aged now, and there are gaps, but <laughs> one of the top 10 brown bears ever killed was killed with a 22 long rifle. In a single shot by a Native American woman in Alaska. Jeez, jeez. Yeah. And it, it was more a case of it's what she had and when she needed it. And so she went to work. And I think she went through a, a fairly large percentage of her little box of bullets before that thing died. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Do you, she was, do, you think, yeah. do you think companies... Now, this is not... For everybody, because I know there are people that that do the homework, like you said, the one percent that that gain those skills, that put in the work. But do you think companies are are culpable in their marketing scheme, getting most guys thinking that, that they could shoot long range? All you got to do is just buy a Creedmoor, and you can shoot long range. All you got to do is just get a get a scope with a turret on it, and you can you can shoot long range. It's do you think companies are culpable culpable on that? It depends on the company entirely. And let's look at a perfect example. One of my favorite companies in the outdoor world is Hornady. 
It's an American company. It's family owned. Mm -hmm. The people there are characters in the very best sense. I mean, they're fantastic. Uh, just like the rest of us, they're, yep, they're quirky, they're interesting, but, uh, where I'm going with this is that Hornady in the past decade and a half has designed more phenomenally successful cartridges than any other company. And they've all been geared toward long range capability, 6.5 Creedmoor, 6.5 PRC, 300 PRC, now the brand new 7mm PRC. Even little cartridges like the 6mm Arc, which is optimized for long range out of a AR-15 type yeah, rifle, they're all yeah, they have tremendous performance. At the same time, Steve Hornady, who's kind of like the character of all the characters there, is adamantly opposed to long range shooting on big game. So much so that when Hornady developed what they ended up naming the ELDX bullet, extremely low drag, expanding bullet. There were marketing people in his company that battled to give that bullet some kind of a name tied to long range because it's extremely good for that, right? In actuality, it's kind of optimized for long range hunting. That particular bullet is. Steve Hornady would not hear of it. He said, we're going to give it a scientific name. It's an extremely low drag bullet, ELD, right? It's an expanding bullet. So ELDX, that's what we're going to call it. People can derive what they will from that and use it however they're going to use it. But I will not promote long range banging away at big game because too many people don't put in the work to gain the capability. Right. So that's just one example of a company that, you know, has a product, has designed products that have greatly increased shooters capability to reach out and yet is very careful about, um, the ethics of that and is conscious of the fact that there are some dilemmas, some problems with that. On the other hand, you've got shows like the best of the West back in the day. Uh, you know, their, their point was to shoot stuff at long range and the companies they were tied to did the same thing. If you're a long range shooter and you are trying to learn and grow, look at Gunworks. That company has done more, in my opinion, to increase the capability of equipment for long range shooting and to teach the skills of long range shooting, both of which I really greatly appreciate and to promote the act of, of shooting long on game, which I'm in a quandary about. I'm not so sure on that, right. Than any other company, but if you're going to learn, they're the place to go. They've got hundreds of YouTube videos on that process. You have to do realize though, that this is one of their, their major marketing uh, methods. And so they are going to teach those skills optimistically. And, uh, you know, the guys that give their whole heart to it, achieve those skills. Most, most guys don't take it that far. And on the far end of the stick, then you've got, you know, companies that, um, really shy away from that. And interestingly in the magazine industry, it's been very controversial to write anything about long-range hunting until very recently when the trends have become so uh, profound and and you just can't ignore them anymore. So people, editors, have begun asking for articles on long-range hunting, saying, okay, look, we're not going to promote this, but if you're going to do this, these are some points you need to know. I think those are good things. Uh, it's, it's an evolution. It's where uh, 
at least hunting here in the West, is headed. Everybody's intrigued by shooting farther. In the East, where you just can't get a long-distance range, it's not as big a deal, but it is a big thing here in the West. It's, It's undeniable. I think back in the day, and in, in at least, you know, I'm in my late 40s, but at least in, in, in our lifetime, it was like, to brag, you would brag about how close you got to something. Hey, I shot that deer at, at 30 yards. Now it's it's like, to brag, you want to say, I shot that deer at 1,030 yards. Now, in the East, that doesn't happen, but out West, it seems like the the further you are, the more of an accomplishment it is. You know, you're you're right, but it's demographic dependent. And my yeah. first my first um elk with the bow, I shot at eleven yards with a recurve bow. And that was an incredible experience. And you bet I I was young enough still, I bragged on getting that close. I actually didn't stalk it. I got within about sixty yards and then my brother called it past me. So the team effort, but in the traditional bow hunting world, that's still a bragging point. In the muzzleloading world, if you can stalk within 25 yards of something before you shoot it with a flintlock, absolutely a bragging point. I I don't think that's gone away. I think what has happened is there's been an evolution in the acceptability of shooting long on game. And so people are now uh, using that as another way to, uh, yes, well, call it what it is, brag a little bit. So when I hear somebody talking about that, my first reaction is always to express interest, right? I don't shoot them down immediately because I want to learn more. And if you start being antagonistic, they're going to clam up. But express interest. It doesn't have to be approval. And then I ask about the situation. I ask what caliber or cartridge they're using, what bullet they used, about their shooting platform. And then once they've kind of loosened up, I'll say, did you did you get him with your first shot? And sometimes then they'll they'll pull in their horns. And they don't want to say much more. Other times they'll say, I sure did, man. You know, it, it, all those years and months and thousands of rounds paid off. And then I'm like, okay, this guy's put in the work. If they pull in their horns and they're like, eventually sheepishly admit, well, I had seven rounds left in my box of ammo when we were done. Then, you know, <laughs> they didn't do it right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, you brought up, some of the TV shows and that goes back to the companies and their, their marketing plans. And I, I know a guy who worked on one of the shows and he talked about how, you know, behind the scenes, they wouldn't show this, but they, they would get up on deer or elk and, and back up to make it a further shot. Or if they were at 940, they'd back up, 60 yards to make it a thousand thousand yard shot and then they they wouldn't show you know the four misses and then the corrections from the spotter but they would show the actual hit as if it were the 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 first hit so that goes back to the to the marketing and maybe giving an unfair marketing angle to the folks that are at home going damn you know, that deer last year that I couldn't hit, I'm not going to let that happen again. But it happens quite a bit on on hunting shows. You see that where, you know, like you said, the the, the longer range, the, the more of an accomplishment it is. Yeah. And there are promoters of that. Uh, 
how you react to that, gosh, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of promoting long-range shooting because, as you've said, it tends to, to inspire people to do stuff that they shouldn't do. Just like I shouldn't get up on a, a you know a, a stage in front of a thousand people and try and sing karaoke. That's a really bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, the first time I ever heard of somebody backing up for a shot was from an old outfitter in Montana. Funny enough, and we were talking about shooting long, and he said, or sorry, shooting close, and he said, "Man, so many times if you have a guy get." inside of about 150 yards on a big bugling bull elk, they lose it. And they're shooting as soon as they see hair in the scope, they're yanking the trigger, they're running shells through the chamber without even pulling the trigger, just cycling them through. Said, and I said, well, what do you do? I said, you know, funny enough, I try and get a read on my client beforehand. And if they're that type that's going to lose it at the moment of truth, if they're close and we're making a stock, I try not to get inside 250 yards. He said, I think 300 yards is about the sweet spot because you're not close enough to kind of feel the magnetic presence of that animal. And I'm paraphrasing here. Those weren't his words, right? Yeah. And you're far enough away that the shooter recognizes the need to make a careful shot and they hold it together better. They don't panic as much. So, and this was before dial-up scopes. I mean, this is when I was guiding in Montana and, uh, it really kind of opened my eyes. That's not what you're talking about so much. I know what you're saying. You know, people are like, there's a really nice buck. I know guides that have gone through this. He's 450 yards away. And the client will say, unless he's a 200 inch deer, I'm not taking a shot inside a thousand yards. Let's back up. Cause they, they want that to be their trophy, that long shot. Right. And I am a hundred percent adamantly opposed to that. That is foolish. Right. As uh, pertaining to your other comment on <laughs> shooting three or four shots on TV, but only showing the sixth shot that connected, you know, I saw that so dramatically displayed once. I don't even remember the the name of the show, but it was one of those that kind of makes their meat and potatoes on long range shooting. It was in New Zealand. There was a tar, a bull tar walking up the far ridge. And of course they've got all the cutaways in the scene and the shooters on the trigger and <laughs> You see the vapor trail arch high and then drop in and hit that thing perfectly. High shoulder shot just crumpled and rolled down the hill. In the distant background, you hear the guide say, well, that one got him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which tells you that ain't the first shot, you know? Yep. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. and it happens. And, and like you said, it's, it's, it's not all the hunting shows. But if you follow or followed hunting TV... You definitely see that trend and whether they're selling products or not, the longer the, the shot, sometimes the, the more, the, the larger the patch they, they could wear on their arm. And I think it's, you know, it's disingenuous to, the, to, to somebody at home that just doesn't know what they don't know. And we've covered it quite a bit. It takes more than just buying a rifle and, and buying a scope to be able to shoot those distances. And even the guys that do it regularly, they still miss. Their spotters are still off. They they still need to make adjustments. And I think that goes back to the the question of, of what is that threshold distance. And I don't think there's any one right answer. You could quote the Boone and Crockett Club, uh, the statement, 
does not give the hunter improper advantage over the animal. So what is that distance? I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, moving target, no pun intended. For sure. And it depends a lot. I mean, if you're going to use animal awareness and spook zone, it, it varies tremendously on how much pressure that local area receives. I've hunted mule deer in areas where you could walk right up to 90 yards from them and they didn't spook. They just looked at you because they're never hunted, uh, you know, except by landowners with special permits. I've hunted elk, like I mentioned before, in areas where if they see you skyline at a mile, they are gone. So it depends a lot on the education of the local population, too, uh, if you're tying that factor into your definition of fair chase. I will say that the backcountry, at least, where I spend most of my time, opportunities are so hard won and the animals are generally so cagey that I don't think you need to put a distance on it. I think the challenges of the terrain the low density, you know, population densities, the, the, you know, all the other challenges, the weather, everything, uh, is far more important. Do you think that the industry should, should come up with a a minimum caliber and, and be more vocal about the six, five, not six, five Creedmoor, not being an elk? Regardless of the distance, it's it's not a preferred elk caliber. Do you think there should be more <laughs> localization on that? You know, I think we can all benefit from education. And, uh, you know, that's always been the American way, is try to understand and make good, informed uh, decisions. I don't like regulation. I really don't like being told I can or can't do something. And that's just back to that old freedom-loving American viewpoint, right? And so I I would be opposed to cartridge uh, uh, restrictions yeah. for, you know, within reason. Like in Utah, where I grew up, I think 243 was the minimum for big game. In other states, any 22 center fires uh, legal, you can hunt elk with a 22 hornet if you want, little tiny varmint cartridge. But education is a better way to steer people away from that. And... You know, man, that's that's just something that communicators like you and I need to to wear that mantle uh, intentionally and do our best to uh, to engage, educate, and entertain. Meanwhile, without uh, antagonizing, because anybody that's antagonized as you're trying to teach them something is going to repudiate what you're attempting to teach. Yeah, and you you talked about this topic quite a bit on on your podcast. So, what drives you to to cover this, other than just your general interest in guns and ammo and 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 shooting? Sure, you know I've seen a animals that um, weren't hit with the biggest a uh, big enough hammer, if I can use that phrase, and I don't like to see the results. Sometimes game animals get away for too long you know they they might take a day and a half to recover when it really should have been 15 minutes and i don't like that either so it's just a number of experiences i'm also a reporter with an obsessive amount of curiosity and so anywhere that i'm traveling and hunting i talk with the guides the other experienced hunters and so forth and we share stories about cartridge capabilities and success and so forth and i've I've hunted, I've been blessed enough to hunt 
in my capacity with a lot of unique people in a lot of unique places, including with some of the better elk hunting guides and outfitters and Audad, you know, the Barbary sheep that uh, are found in Texas, New Mexico guides and so forth. And, and Wyoming, Montana, more and more, you see outfitters requiring something bigger than a 6.5 Creedmoor. You can't really say they're outlawing it, but that's a term that I often hear thrown out there. We've outlawed 6.5 Creedmoor for use on Audad. That's becoming more and more widespread. And you got to ask why. Well, they're seeing insufficient killing ability. And I think that's two. There's actually three factors that come in. One is often uh, people choose the wrong bullet for the task. For elk, you need a deep, penetrating, controlled expansion bullet, whatever cartridge you're shooting. For uh, elk, you should have a certain amount of energy and so forth. With a 6.5 Creedmoor, you often lack in both of those. And then, of course, the other is is shooter performance. I had got some information, some data from a, a dog handler in Texas, believe it or not, in an area where they shoot thousands, tens of thousands of deer every fall. And he had made a business out of tracking wounded deer with his blood trailing dogs. Mm-hmm. And within anywhere within four hours or so people would call him and he'd travel and he'd put his dogs on the scent and they'd follow up well this guy was also a gun and cartridge you know aficionado enthusiast and so he would take notes he'd take notes about how far something traveled when he found it he'd take notes on where it was hit and he'd always ask the hunter what cartridge and bullet they were using and the data i got was something like 80 one or 82% of the deer he tracks these days are shot with a 6.5 Creedmoor. So what can you derive from that? Oh, and the other note was that previously, before the Creedmoor became a big thing, it was always 243 that held the majority of the wounding experiences. Now, can you draw from that, that the 243 and the 6.5 Creedmoor are incapable killers? Not at all. You got to look beyond that, read between the lines and understand the situation Currently, the 6.5 Creedmoor is hands down the most popular cartridge for beginning hunters and for youth. So you've got a lot of people in the field that are inexperienced that are shooting deer. I mean, in Texas, they don't often take long shots, right? They don't have to. But let's say inside 300 yards, but they're not hitting them well. And as a result, that cartridge, since it's the most popular, is being used the most to create those wounded deer. It's not the cartridge's fault. So we can wrap that back just briefly. I want to tell a little bit about why I think it's so important to use a big enough hammer, especially on Western big game. If you're a white, yeah, absolutely. Guy, I, 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 I before you start that, I just want to say I always think bigger is better, and I hate tracking animals. So yeah, I'm I'm all ears. Okay. So let's set a little bit of a premise. Guys in whitetail country tend to be very picky about their shots, especially if they're bow hunters. And if you have a fleeting, uh, somewhat challenging opportunity to great big whitetail, most guys will hold off knowing that if they're patient and they keep hunting that buck, they're likely to get a better opportunity. Doesn't happen in the West. 
usually does not happen that way unless you're hunting early season on private land with a very expensive landowner tag where the animals are unpressured, right? If you find a big buck in alpine country during a general season hunt, you know, mule deer, you had better pull out all the stops to get that deer because you're unlikely to ever get another chance. Same thing with a big elk in elk country. Plus, you get guys traveling in. These are pilgrimage-type hunts. And so you may come for a 10-day hunt. You may work your hindquarters off for nine days and finally get an opportunity that's challenging. The, the shot is long somewhat. The angle is non-optimal. You don't have a broadside shot. If you're going to take that animal, you have to take the opportunity the mother nature in the backcountry provide you. Why would you ever handicap yourself with a marginal cartridge at that point in time? You need a cartridge that hits hard with a bullet that penetrates well, particularly on elk. And the classic example is if you're moving through heavy timber, whether you're following a bugling, you know, a herd with a bugling bull in it, or you're just working up a, a timbered slope to find a vantage point that you can glass the basin below in, whatever. It often happens in elk country that you'll come into close contact with a bull elk. And generally, unless you just blow them out of there with a lot of noise and scent and whatnot, generally that bull will stand up out of his bed or he'll turn at the back of the herd and look back at you. And usually you're going to get a quartering shot. He'll either be quartering away, looking back over his shoulder at you as his herd moves off in front of him, or he'll stand up out of his bed and he'll turn quartering to you and stare at you for a matter of, oh, I'm going to say 10 to 30 seconds before he just vanishes. And all you hear is running hoofs and antlers clacking off of branches as he disappears, right? So either of those shot scenarios are challenging for a bullet. You got to have something that will drive through heavy hide on a bull elk through, especially on the shoulder a lot of muscle. There's 10 to 12 inches of nothing but dense shoulder muscle. We're talking like Arnold Schwarzenegger level mm -hmm. of toned muscle, plus the potential to hit a very large bone before you even get into the vitals. Then of course, you're coming into the rib, the vitals at a, an angle. So you're coming through those ribs at an angle. You're going to hit one, maybe two ribs with that bullet. At this point, you've penetrated 12 to 14 inches of heavy muscle, and potentially a considerable amount of bone. Most whitetail bullets, especially the ones that are great for broadside shots, aren't even going to get into the vitals. Yeah, You must choose a deep penetrating bullet if you're going to take a shot like that. Then, of course, once your, your bullet pops into the thoracic cavity, as long as it's still got enough integrity and, and shape left to penetrate through both lungs at an angle, you're golden. You have that bull. He's yours, right? And that is an extremely deadly shot because if you're shooting a heavy enough cartridge, you know, swinging a heavy enough hammer, all that shock in his front shoulder is very likely to drop him right there. Plus, it's gone through his vitals. He's going to expire without getting up. It's perfect. Of course, if he's quartering away, you don't have shoulder muscle and bone, but what you often catch is a paunch full of brows. Elk eat a lot of heavy uh, vegetation. And they'll have a big stomach full of that stuff. And I can tell you, 16 or 18 inches of twigs and grasses and leaves that are all compacted in a, a dense, wet mass is catastrophically hard for a bullet to penetrate. 
And if you don't get through that paunch and into the vitals coming, you know, at an angle from the other direction now, you're not going to harvest that animal cleanly. He's going to run off gut shot and die a slow death. You're not going to recover him. So, man, I have absolutely no patience for people that are shooting uh, moderate, let's call it nearly inadequate cartridges with deer bullets when they come west. Yep. You're not shooting the the uh, Remington core locks effectively in that scenario, right? And perfect for for deer back east, but and, and funny enough, I mean that's that's uh, somewhat actually debatable because there are exceptions to every bullet rule, and the core locked, in my opinion, is the best of the cup and core type bullets, non bonded. But you have to go very heavy for caliber, minimum mm-hmm. of 180 grains in a 30 out six. And a 220 grain core locked in a 30 out six is very good elk medicine, but it's not good past 200 yards. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. You're shooting that barge again, right? Inside of the, you know, deep woods. Fantastic. Well, that that's just brings up the point you, you've been, you've been illustrating this whole podcast is that there's different scenarios, different circumstances that require the hunter to take that responsibility and to figure those out before they shoot an animal yes and there's no benefit in handicapping yourself in any way by shooting a little cartridge and a cheap bullet or a a, you know bullet that you can get readily shoot a, a an appropriate cartridge and pick a bullet that penetrates well even on mule deer because Mule deer are generally bigger than whitetails, and you might catch one at a funny angle, and it's the only chance you get at him, right? Uh, a local hunter that I really admire and respect is shot. He actually lost count of the number of elk he shot, but 22 with a bow uh, in his first something like 25 years of hunting. And wow. in mul- multiple states, Idaho, uh, Colorado, Montana, whatnot, he won't shoot a cartridge that with a bullet or he doesn't like to, that's not capable of taking a bull with a Texas heart shot. You'd talk about a challenging shot. And for those of you unfamiliar with the term, a Texas heart shot is a straight up the tailpipe shot. You have to have a very deep penetrating bullet to go up through the hindquarters, through the guts and into the vitals and compromise that. I raised my eyebrows when he said that I said, tell me why. I mean, what's your reasoning? And he said, well, I don't like to shoot game that way with first shot. I don't do that. But, you know, I hunt with kids. I hunt with friends. Sometimes I make an imperfect shot. And when you're tracking a bull and he jumps up in heavy timber, what's the shot he's going to give you? It's going to go straight. He's going straight away. And you need to be able to pound him to the ground, end that thing without further suffering. And if you have a bullet that won't even get through his hindquarter, you're not going to be able to do that. Yeah, I've never had that scenario play out, so I've never had to make that decision. But I always just felt like you're there's too much risk to 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 meet damage and the hind hitting the hind corner quarter and not getting the penetration that you need. I always felt like instead of a hard shot, I'd I'd aim at the the Texas hard shot. I'd always felt like I'd aim at the base of the neck if I had that shot to to take. But you know, I have been in that scenario with wounded game that friends have wounded and once i'll be honest with a a mule deer that i wounded and at that point in time you're committed right the animal needs to be put down oh yeah absolutely and being being humane is now important more important than 
worrying about meat damage. Yep. The no, trouble with the trouble with the next shot, it's great in concept, but often they're moving fast. It's a very small target. And often you're in thick brush and they're ducking under branches. So you can't mm-hmm. even see their head. If you can hit them in the hindquarters and ideally either break the spine or one hip, they're going to drop right there. And if you have enough bullet, very rarely are any of us hunting with enough bullet to get all the way forward into the vitals, but break them down right there and quickly shoot them through the vitals and it's over and it's ended with as much humanity as possible. Yeah. And that's why my thoughts of more is better comes into play (laughs) for that very scenario because there's nothing worse than wounded an animal. Uh, It's it's gut-wrenching. Now, we should talk, of course, about the far end of the stick because, you know, we don't want to make people think we're going to be shooting a, you know, 470 Nitro Express at mule deer here just because, you know, bigger is always better. Bigger isn't always better, but you have to be big enough. Shoot, in my opinion, shoot the biggest, most capable cartridge that's appropriate for that species that you can handle. And there yeah, are some, I, yeah, I should clarify. When I say bigger is better, I, my personal favorite caliber is the 30 out six i have had it since i was 12 and i shot a lot of animals with it but when i say bigger is better the 30s a 300 win mag you know i'm sort of a traditional traditionalist 7 mm so yeah yeah now, i like the 7 mm's in the 30s for our broad spectrum use across the the lower 48 very much they're just terrific Six fives are great if you get into the faster ones like the six five PRC or the six five Weatherby RPM. Those are great deer and sheep cartridges. I don't like to use them on elk. But if you go up into the far north, you know, seven mm is is now like a two forty three for deer. So up there you're better off with a thirty caliber magnum and up into the three thirty eights, the thirty fives, three seven fives, and so forth. Because you got moose and big brown bears and so forth. It's a different situation. Yeah, and that's where getting full circle on that. That's where practicing and being proficient shooter comes into play. Absolutely. Uh, do you wanna do you wanna talk about as as we wrap it up? Do you wanna talk about um your podcast and, and what you you do on the backcountry podcast? Backcountry sure. hunting podcast. Absolutely. I'd love to. The Backcountry Hunting Podcast is, um, well, our aim is to try and help hunters become uh, better hunters and to inspire them to hunt more, hunt harder. Uh, My kind of my theme from the beginning is to educate, inspire, and entertain. And we're very um, oriented toward how to and toward uh, gear because as much as we preach against thinking you can buy capability by spending $10,000 on a long range hunting rig, as we've been talking about, you actually can't achieve capability without adequate tools. So you do have to buy adequate tools. Now that doesn't necessarily mean you have to spend a ton. You can get an entry-level Tika rifle or Browning rifle and a $400 scope from Leupold and, and very capably achieve that quarter mile uh, distance lethality that I tend to encourage hunters to to gain right so that's what we do uh i tend to try and focus a lot on diy stuff on public land stuff although you know some of my greatest adventures have been 
hunting in Africa with friends or in the far north uh, on Kodiak Island and so forth. I really enjoy getting out of my comfort zone, learning, and trying to pass on the, the life lessons that, uh, that come to me during those times. Backcountry Hunting Podcast, if you're interested, we'd love to have you follow along. Yeah, uh, there's some great stuff on there, and and I uh, I'm a I'm a listener. So, no, thank you. Are you are you still doing any writing, or are you still working for the magazine uh, era? Oh yeah, magazines. Yep. So the podcasting is is definitely a side business. I own it. I've grown it. We're coming up on four years now, and it is starting to make some money. And I'm really grateful for that because I can't continue to do it. Um, you know, it's it's not a hobby for me. It it was an investment in time for a few years, and it started to monetize a bit, and it's looking promising. I am, uh, you know, doing well enough that I'm really enjoying it, and it's uh, it pays me to continue and, and try and grow the podcast, but. 100% my main living is writing. I write close to 100 articles a year for Peterson Sunning, Shooting Times, Rifle Shooter Magazine, and all of Guns and Ammo's special interest publications. Those are the newsstand only dedicated topic uh, magazines with, you know, they're beautifully built, perfect bound, better paper, and so forth. And then occasionally I'll write for uh, the Guns and Ammo period, excuse me, periodical as well. Cool. I still love love print. I, I I just can't give that up. So I, I oh, I'm I'm the same. When I got into this business nearly a couple de- decades ago, I was told not to expect it to last more than another decade, and that I better be planning ahead. And I'm so grateful that uh, that has proven to be entirely wrong. Print is still uh, really strong and very effective. It's just like the the. The thoughts of of when home videos were around and streaming, oh, the movie theaters are going to be obsolete. That's not the case. The same with print. Yeah. Uh, well, did we cover everything? Is there anything we we want to close out with? You know, I I think it's been a great conversation. Uh, I appreciate the chance to come on here. I would leave if I was to leave a a final thought with listeners. It's it's this, my, my personal creed in the field has always been to be the best hunter I can. So I can stalk really closely and make hundred percent, uh, clean kills. Right. But at the same time to be the best rifleman I possibly can be for those times when I can't stalk close and, or the situation requires a long range shot to help a friend finish off a, you know, situation gone wrong or whatever. And so if you combine those two approaches to hunting, you can gain all the fulfillment from the interaction with the wildlife and the the habitat and reading the terrain and using it and your patience and those close encounters that just reach your soul. And at the same time, just about whatever the distance is, within reason, of course, you can lay down with a confidence of knowing you can kill cleanly and ethically. And it's a it's a great way to be in the field. I I absolutely agree with that. And in my one piece of advice, and then I know this firsthand, if you want to shoot past even say 150, 200 yards, you better practice in the in the scenarios that you're going to shoot in the field. Because shooting from a bench just doesn't cut it like that. 
That's right. A shooting bench is a useful tool for uh, just setting up. And that's all. You need to get your zero figured out. You should validate your trajectory out at long range if you're going to do that. And then get away from the bench and just spend yeah. your time with improvised shooting positions, shoot against a clock, uh, create scenarios. It can be fun. Go go out there and create scenarios with a friend and work through them. You'll learn a ton and become a much better, more effective uh, shooter in the field. All right. I think one it there. Joseph von Benning, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it, man. What a great talk. My pleasure, Jim. Thanks for the invitation.